Hello there and welcome to the Values Through Vulnerability podcast. I'm your host, Gary Turner. I was grateful to have Jennifer Brown from Jennifer Brown Consulting on the podcast today. Jennifer is a specialist within the diversity and inclusion space. She is someone from the LGBT community herself and is someone that is really passionate about ensuring that practitioners that operate within the DNI space have got a lot more guidance than they've had over the past years. One of the things that comes, comes through loud and clear from our discussion is that whilst DNI has been on the agenda for a long time, there's not been too many major moves forward until recently, but there really seems to be a palpable shift, something that she's supporting with her own book um, that she's released previously. And I really enjoyed her comment as well that with good design, a facilitator can do everything. So I just really sense a nice shout out there to anyone in learning development or anyone that's looking to create an environment for people to practice or to have a conversation or to be curious around anything to do with DNI. And I think you'll really enjoy some of the insights that Jennifer kindly shares during this podcast. So I'll get out of the way, let you get on with it. Please do, as always, offer feedback to Jennifer and or myself. We're always grateful to receive any feedback on the iTunes podcast app. Um, should you've enjoyed the podcast. And in the meantime, uh, enjoy it and uh, look forward to hearing anything that you may have to say about the podcast. Cheers for now. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability, a podcast dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. And today I'm really grateful to welcome Jennifer Brown from Jennifer Brown Consulting. Hi there, Jennifer, how are you? Thanks, Gary. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Oh, no. Thank you so much for coming along. Well, look, just as we get going, would you mind just giving my listeners a bit more of a background? Sort of, who is Jennifer? What's your background? And what are you passionate about? Sure. Uh, I am a diversity and inclusion consultant, I guess I would say. I'm a business owner in the space as well. So I have an amazing team that helps me deliver programs and uh, strategy work to our Fortune 500 clients typically. So we, we tend to work on large companies and all of the things that they need guidance on and support on. Um, and I've been in the space for over a decade. I've been a business owner for over a decade as well in the space. And um, I have a book called Inclusion, Diversity, the New Workplace, and the Will to Change, which is now two years old, my goodness. Um, <laughs> and we've had such a blast with it. It's been um, so gratifying to have it. I know it was hell getting it written because <laughs> it always is, but, uh, but I'm so happy to have it. And I think it's been very helpful for particularly for the practitioners in the world who are charged with building these programs and their companies. Um, there's just not a lot of guidance specific to the role from a strategy perspective. There's a lot of diversity books about bias and um, you know, behavior at work and what the individual can do to be a more inclusive leader. But I think that I wrote my book, given that I'm a practitioner and a consultant, I wrote it with that lens in mind, wanting to really help the field advance its understanding about how do we lead this work. Um, and so that was that book. And then I'm working on another book Ooh. out in August of 2019. And this one's going to be much more general audience. And it's going to be about the journey that we all take towards becoming an inclusive leader from apathy to awareness to activating and to finally, ultimately, and hopefully becoming someone that's considered an advocate for marginalized communities and utilizing our privilege for good and as a change agent. And of course, a lot of that messaging, I think, and I hope reaches, for example, straight white male leaders um, in particular, because I think there's been um, a lack of understanding about how to engage and perhaps some hesitation around what can I do and am I going to say the right thing? And it, are these times so sensitive that maybe it's more risky or riskier than it's ever been for me to take action. And I, I don't want, I, for obvious reasons, I don't want people to stay in that place. I, I'd really like, I'd really like people to activate because we need all hands on deck in order to create meaningful, sustainable and scalable change. Oh, that's, it's really powerful. Straight away, you're, uh, you're ticking a lot of my boxes, Jennifer, with this, because <laughs> as a straight white, white male myself, it's really fascinating. I only understood, and I say that as a 42 year old for the first time this year, what wow. white, white male privilege is. I hadn't. Oh, my goodness. Oblivious. 
So wow. that's really powerful. For oh, me that makes me feel away. good about the purpose of the book then. I, I, and then that's my theory. My thesis is that many people are like you that are just coming to terms with this. And, um, and I know for me, my journey around white privilege has been relatively recent as well. I'm a member of the LGBT community. So uh, for 20 years or more. So I'm deeply acquainted with that world and, and have learned so much about how we've created change and parity and equity and policies and, and really put some good pressure on companies and employers to have the right support. But, um, but in terms of, I think all of us are reckoning more recently with this concept of privilege and allyship and whiteness um, and maleness even, which we honestly have not talked about a lot in terms of our diversity strategies. Um, and so there's just like, we're really at the, like the minus 1.0 level of those conversations. So I'm really excited to kind of push it with my next book. I want to, I want to shine a light on it. I want to make it not a shameful conversation, but a helpful one. And uh, I want to invite people to get on the journey somewhere, you know, wherever you are, however imperfectly, um, you know, I want to open that up and give people some tools to do that. Oh, that, that's amazing. Just out of interest, I'd like to delve back in a little bit, if I may, with you in terms of your sort of education, because I think it's amazing. A, you've got two master's degrees, which is, <laughs> hey, that's amazing in itself. Oh, but, thanks. <laughs> but what I love is the, I'm interested to explore with you a little bit. Um, so you've got one master's in actual voice mm-hmm. and the other actually in organizational development. So how do those two sort of play up for you today in your consulting work? Are they aligned? Do they sort of show up at different times? Oh, definitely. I mean, I was a performer my whole life, musician, grew up in a musical family, got the in- incredible privilege, speaking of privilege, to go to opera, vocal performance, grad school in, in New York of all places and got my equity card and um, moved pretty quickly, hopefully, and I was hoping to go into the Broadway space. And then I unfortunately injured my voice and had to get surgeries and uh, just P.S., wasn't going to work. You know, I just didn't have the vocal stamina to do eight shows a week. It was going to kill me. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I think, and then, and then reinventing into uh, uh, kickstarting into a new career, I did that through getting a degree. It's almost like I did the degree before I had any practical experience. Um, but it was actually perfect because it grounds you in all the principles. It connects you to a new community of practice. Um, and that was my network then that I could find my way into my first training coordinator position. So I had to start at the bottom again uh, in a new field, but I moved quickly through it because it was such a fit. You know, I just always loved the work. I ended up being really good at pieces of it, not all of it, but I was particularly, I think, very comfortable facilitating because of my stage experience. So I ended up finding a niche as a soft skills trainer and taught everything under the sun from time management to negotiation skills to, you know, stuff that I, I barely was, you know, an expert on, but, um, with a good design, a good facilitator can do anything in the room. And, um, I, I learned quickly and I, I just loved my days as a trainer and it felt, it felt very similar to performing improvisational, um, the ability to build trust and credibility quickly with an audience that you've never met. Um, you know, I think all sorts of skills that I brought and, um, and being fearless, you know, having to go on stage over and over again when you audition leads to a real resilience. Um, and, you know, in some of the training classrooms I walked into, people were angry, people were, you know, uh, dis, disenchanted with their employers, one foot out the door, you know, so as you can imagine, corporate classrooms that talk about leadership are, can be really tough conversations. Um, companies are not doing a lot of this well, you know, as we know, it's rare to stumble across a company where I, I would walk into one of those rooms and people would say, I love working here and it's perfect. And I feel totally supported. And, you know, <laughs> so you, you'd, ha- and then you'd kind of end up being the proxy for everybody's bad feelings. Cause you're the person that the company is sending in to do a three day leadership program. So I, I quickly kind of had to be really resourceful and pull my my new knowledge together quickly and read a ton of leadership books and think about what is my point of view about what's broken in the workplace? Why are, why are people feeling this way? And I felt that way too. When I was a full-time employee before I had my own company, I was absolutely checked out, frustrated, feeling not seen and heard. And it was, it was actually beyond my diversity dimensions. I, I didn't, I don't think I would say it was gendered or because I was LGBT necessarily. It was, it was bigger than that. It was, you know, I wasn't able to be creative. Uh, like I prefer to be, um, you know, I wasn't able to find the right role. I was sort of hired into a job 
It wasn't like on paper, it made sense for me, but it wasn't, so there was none of the flexibility. And, um, and then you add to that why so many people are unhappy in the workplace today related to diversity issues. And that was something I eventually started to learn a lot about and then pivot my company into almost exclusively, which was, you know, if you think you're disengaged, imagine being a woman of color in your organization, who's the only one every single day and how she feels or how that LGBT person that's closeted. So basically lying every day about who their family is and what they did over the weekend, you know, how that feels in addition to feeling all the other things that everybody else is feeling about, you know, the pace of change and um, lack of transparency and everything. So it just became, um, the diversity lens just sort of deepened my understanding of what was already broken from a leadership and engagement perspective. And it gave it a whole different thing to specialize in. And, um, but it's neat because I pull my background in organizational development and leadership into diversity work constantly because diversity work in organizations is all about change management. It's all about, uh, becoming a better leader and, um, showing people how they, what they're missing about their people, about themselves, you know, how they're covering and downplaying, you know, their own identities in order to pass and assimilate and what the trade-offs are when we do that. And turns out we're all doing that. You know, everybody has a diversity story, as I say on my podcast. Um, and uh, that is true. I mean, I can be in a room full of, you know, what apparently is white straight men. And I'm just floored by some of the things that are shared with me either in the room or in private that remind me that um, adversity and exclusion, all of us have had experiences of that. So not to create an equivalency, um, you know, I don't want to call it the pain Olympics, which is often we laugh and say, I didn't make that up. That's from Kenji Yoshino. And he's like, the pain Olympics is not really helpful. It's not about the hierarchy of oppression, but it's very important for leaders that look like you and me also though, to understand that there kind of are hierarchies of uh, I, I might say difficulty, I might say challenge, I might say um, headwinds that are faced by certain communities in the workplace that all of us as leaders need to be aware of, that some things are easier for us because of how we look and how we present and harder for others. So mm, it's, 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 it's really, mate, I've just got like 90 questions for you. Um, so, uh, <laughs> what a wonderful, yeah. wonderful, what, what a wonderful introduction. I think, I think what really strikes me is that, you know, for me, what I'm seeing certainly in, in my network, Jennifer, is this, everyone's talking about inclusion, but how many people are really getting under the skin of it, like you're describing? And I'm just wondering, how do you, out of interest, how do you enroll a senior leader or an organization to genuinely look at this rather than just pay lip service to this? Is there a certain, is it that skill set you describe that helps you actually empathize, connect with these leaders? Because it's, it's an interesting time for this topic. Yeah, I think it is. I think I'm a different kind of practitioner because of that background. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, that grounding in leadership and change and adult learning theory and instructional design and all the things that I studied in my master's degree are all um, consulting skills um, is another one. Consulting is, it might get a bad name, but it's such an art. It is such an art to, you know, enter a situation and be a helpful guide and figure out your role and maintain healthy boundaries and, you know, scope the, uh, scope the relationship in a way that you can be, um, you can play the right role as an external person in influencing, but you actually don't have any control. <laughs> you can't tell people what to do. Um, and you're the expert at the same time. So consultants um, are sometimes just facilitators, but they're also maybe a domain expert as well, which is what mm -hmm. I am. And I think that's what a lot of our team is, right? We're, we're asked for the answer. We're not just coaching and guiding. We're actually asked, you know, what do I do now? You know, what do we do next? So we, we do have a point of view about how, what needs to be in place in a company to achieve meaningful change and to um, do a, um, create a robust effort. You know, everything from senior leadership buy-in to communications and messaging that don't get sort of lost as they trickle down into the middle, the frozen middle, as we talk about middle management. Uh, we talk about ERGs, which are diversity networks of diverse employees needing to be launched or in place or supported to grow because those are really important bottoms up the voice of an employee that leaders need to hear to in order to understand what's on your employees hearts and minds um, when it comes to inclusiveness in the culture um, there needs to be training in place you know we need to have a baseline 
a plan for setting that baseline knowledge of what are the terms? How do we talk about this? Um, how is the language changing? Um, how can we become aware of bias in ourselves as leaders and as colleagues? So there's certain, there's sort of a checklist that my team and I go through as we enter an organization and take a pulse of what is, what is current state? What do you want? How quickly do you want it? Who needs to be involved? What does success look like? Because that could be different for different companies. Um, some companies have set um, uh, goals for diversity of representation by a certain year. So it is, it is real and they've maybe publicized those goals, right? Which I'm not sure I'm a fan of <laughs> because sometimes you walk into those clients and you say, boy, I don't know how you're going to hit this and it may cause more damage th that you don't hit it. Um, or how you're going to try to hit it isn't really is not going to be sustainable. So if I say I want gender parity at all levels of my organization by the year 2025, you know, you can get that parity, but is it sustainable? Are you going to actually be able to keep those women? Um, you can bring people in the door, but the big question for a lot of us is, uh, can we retain them? And honestly, that's a much harder thing to solve, believe it or not. I mean, I know we hear a lot of complaints about um, how difficult it is to find diverse talent and fill that pipeline on the outside in. But the keeping of that talent all comes down to the quality of the culture and the inclusiveness. And that is kind of, it's like sand through your fingers. Like it's hard to measure. It's hard for everybody, all of us, including us, to kind of measure the, all the many things that go into whether somebody feels like they belong in an organization and they feel they can thrive and there's no obstacles in their way and all of those things. So, uh, but yes, I, uh, the senior leadership conversation in particular uh, is an important one. Um, and we spend a lot of time setting things up properly at the top of the house because it's critical. I mean, if you don't have the support of the CEO and the CEO's direct, um, every effort is going to kind of be bottoms up and organic, but it's never going to have that imprimatur from the top and the necessary funding and support and really the teeth, honestly, because that's one of the most important things senior leaders can do is make things real, you know, hold people accountable, because people are going to just want to, you know, uh, go back into inertia. It's just a, a natural human thing. They think, well, can I kind of sit this out until it blows over? It's just a sort of flavor of the month. And maybe my CEO will move on to something new next month. So maybe I don't really need to be paying attention to this stuff. And I think uh, the best senior teams really take it seriously and drive it and do that intentionally and consistently. And I wish I saw that more often. Uh, I think there's a lot of room for improvement there. That's great. So, so what, what I'm hearing is there's, there's a palpable shift. So what I'm hearing is certainly with some of your client base, Jennifer, that inclusion is now reaching the strategic sort of imperative. It's now actually a strategic consideration rather than just a nice to have. Is that a fair comment? I think so, particularly because millennials are now the majority of the workforce, right, in, in the, the aggregate information for companies. So they prize diversity it's table stakes to them. So it's a baseline. <laughs> Whereas a lot of us know it is so not a baseline. It's something we've been working on and being frustrated over for, you know, since companies started. I mean, it really hasn't improved appreciably. In fact, you know, a lot of people, if you ask them, if do you think there's more women in senior leadership, do you think there's more women CEOs in the fortune 500? Most people walking around the street would say, yeah, of course, I'm sure it's equal. And people are wrong. I mean, I think they want to think highly of themselves as leaders and as companies as well. Um, but they're wrong. The numbers really haven't improved. And um, along with employee engagement numbers, which also haven't improved uh, year over year, according to Gallup, we're still kind of, we're stuck. We're sort of bouncing along the bottom. Um, and it's, it's frustrating for all of us that have been working on this for decades. I mean, I'm young in the work, but there's certain people that are my peers that have been in this for 20, 30 years. Um, and, and just now, I think we're getting, because of this millennial influx into the workforce, I think they are demanding this. They want to be seen and heard. They expect wanting to belong. I mean, they, they want to feel holistically that all of them is accepted and not just accepted, but, but desired, like welcomed, like celebrated. Um, they've been raised this way. <laughs> they've been raised in a very different way by very different parents than my generation was, meaning my, you know, our, our parents and the older generations were like, you're on your own. Like, I don't, I don't really care about who you are. Like <laughs> you, you need to go figure it out and I'm not going to coddle you. You know, there was a, an absolute self-reliance that started very early for a lot of us. Um, 
financial and otherwise. And um, it's very different for younger talent. Their parents are much more involved in their lives. Um, and, that, and that's, you know, probably a good thing. I mean, I wish my parents had been more able to mentor me and help me. And they had no clue about what the world was that I was emerging into. Um, I didn't have a working mom. Um, my dad had not, not a lot of knowledge about business. Um, I was the firstborn. I am a woman. Um, there was a million reasons that I had no clue what was going to become of me professionally. I mean, no, none at all. And it's, I'm such a late bloomer as a result of being totally confused and without role models in the world. And um, I'm so grateful I've stumbled on what I do now and it feels such a, like such a good and important role, but um, it took me just way too long and it shouldn't take that long. So I do think that leaders know engagement is, is critical. It costs them money when they don't do it well. Um, and they, they are, uh, they don't get it. Maybe they get in, you know, the business case for diversity intellectually. I think that maybe next step is to embody it and to feel it and to personalize it and to truly and authentically drive it from not just the head, but also sort of the heart and the hands, heart, head, heart, hands. Um, and so I think, yes, we all know the business case, uh, but it can be kind of a disembodied understanding of it. And um, I still think a lot of people are giving it lip service or perhaps using it in their external marketing to achieve something, but not necessarily like everyday living it uh, inside their organizations. Mm, it's, it's really interesting. It resonates a lot with, with my thinking as well. I think one of the things I, I talk about this side of the pond is actually we're spending so much money on salaries already. People that want to come to work, they show up at nine o'clock on a, on a Monday. Yet we have got, as you mentioned, Gallup, you know, one in three stubbornly stuck being fully engaged, what, over 20 years now. And my, my question is, for it, what if we could tap into just a small amount of that extra 67 cents in the dollar that we're already paying for? Yeah. This is the fascinating thing for me. It's not an extra cost. We're already paying it. So I think inclusion's got a massive, a massive, uh, a massive job to do there, hasn't it, in tapping into what we're already paying for. Oh yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, it costs what three times somebody's salary to have them walk out the door a year or two after you recruit them. And you already have millennials kind of turning over quickly anyway, because they're onto the next. And uh, so I think it's me, I'm worried about companies ability to really achieve the value from each person. I mean, I just think back to my experience and my departure from corporate full-time roles because I was so unhappy, desperately unhappy. Um, you know, I couldn't work the way I wanted to, where I wanted to. Flex was not even a conversation. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and, and it was, uh, I just felt very constrained and not able to do my best work and really show what I'm capable of. Uh, and I, lucky me, I sort of, you know, found the, the ability to be an entrepreneur. But remember, most people aren't destined to be entrepreneurs. I I don't think so. I mean, it's it's a tough life, um, you know, and, and we, we have to, we have to sell every single day. <laughs> you know, when you have your own business, it's a big part of uh, you're, you're the chief cook and bottle washer until you can build up your team and you have other people to do what you're not great at, you know, whether that's operations or finance or sales or whatever. But it's you and you have to have seed money of some kind to start your own thing, too. So uh, I think companies, companies and big employers are still where it's at. And, and honestly, it's, I'm excited to see companies using their voice for good. And their, companies are actually um, fighting a lot of the battles for equality, at least in the U.S., that are um, not being fought by our current government. Um, and the protections needed by all kinds of people are that torch is being carried, I think, by private companies more than ever before. And I'm so I'm excited for companies to really throw their weight around, you know, use their platform and CEOs to make statements and say, you know, this is what's important to us. And this is what's happening in the world aligns or doesn't align with our values. Companies are, are starting to really get into those discussions. And I'm happy about it because employees really want to work for a place that shares their values and that values them and says so publicly you know, and, and puts that, puts money where their mouth is as well. So, you know, my advice always to companies is you need to be on the right side of this. If you want to retain employees, part of your ability to retain them is that they feel like their work matters, that their purpose aligns with the purpose of the company and that the company's about more than just its bottom line. It's about its, it's about some values in the world. And what I recommend is 
equality and equity and inclusion and belonging are great values because they happen to coincide with uh, great performance, but also coincide with a lot of what the talent really wants. Um, and so we have this really interesting generational gap, though, because leaders are in a different generation and they just didn't grow up thinking about work in this way. Uh, and so it's, it's a real adjustment for them. I mean, I think they thought of work as work and life as life and near the twain shall meet and, you know, bring your whole self to work is this thing we all talk about. But I think a lot of older leaders are like, well, I wasn't able to bring my whole self to work. And why should I build an organization that allows you to do that? You know, you need to just scrap, scrap it and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and suffer just like I did. And there's still a lot of that. There's still a lot of that. <laughs> Beth, what a great opportunity for you and your new book. That's what it sounds good. It sounds a good opportunity. <laughs> I think what jumps out to me, actually, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but there was a Drucker forum in Vienna um, on Sunday. And a report came out, um, quite recently, an article, and it's brilliant. And it actually speaks about it's the first time, Jennifer, in my career I've seen in black and white for, from a very senior, call it think tank, leadership group. Yeah. It said, it is not about the money. The money is an output. Yes. It's not the input. And I was literally this morning going, hurrah, like finally, like, you know, I know it sounds ridiculous. It's so obvious, but I think it just shows you how far I think we've almost gone too far on the mechanistic ways of working and someone's pulling the brake on. Is that something you could see? Totally. It's probably the influence of, I hate to say this, but big consulting, you know, I think we've been cutting and cutting and reorging and, Mm. and, and sort of so intellectualizing structure and costs and without a thought, honestly, to morale and engagement and, and diversity. Right. And I think, um, that blindness has really cost companies and now they might be in catch up mode. I mean, I, I feel a lot of our clients are kind of panicked. (laughs) Um, maybe they're, maybe they're in trouble. Maybe they've got a culture that they're just discovering now through maybe me too scrutiny or whatever that doesn't feel comfortable for women. And I'm sitting here saying, you know, this has been true forever. I mean, if you had just listened, these struggles have been happening for for a very long time, but it's, it's the lack of seriousness that's assigned to it. It by largely male leadership teams just tells me that it is, it's just like diverse talent and their experience is an afterthought. It's one of those nice to haves. It's been viewed as flavor of the month, as we said. It doesn't have any teeth in it. You know, it's not. It's not as real as the other urgent business, you know, considerations of the day. And and that um that feels you know personally pretty bad because nobody wants to feel like an afterthought. And nobody certainly, all of us want to find meaning in our work. All of us want to feel free and free to perform. And um, but that freedom comes a lot from how we feel welcomed, valued, respected, and heard, as we say in, uh, in my company a lot. And, um, and who's feeling those things and who's not? You know, how could we be ignoring that? I mean, we can't just kind of say, you know, work hard and transparency and collaboration and all these kind of words that have almost become meaningless. When collaborating and transparency and all those things have, su- I think I see everything through a diversity lens, but to ignore that lens is to miss out on sort of the deeper meaning of a lot of these words. I mean, you're not going to collaborate um, if you don't feel you're welcome at the meeting or you're not considered or you're talked over or your ideas are stolen or you feel like people aren't giving you opportunities because they've never seen a leader that looks like you or has your background. That hurts collaboration like in a really concrete way. So I, I see this as, as imperative, but um, we've got to rebrand. I think it probably hurt us that we started the diversity conversation years and years ago with the affirmative action piece, you know, that we started with compliance training around sexual harassment and that somehow became synonymous with diversity and inclusion as a leadership competency. But those are two very different things. So I think we are dealing with some legacy uh, assumptions and beliefs about what this conversation really is about and undoing that is really difficult. In fact, uh, some of my clients are dropping the D, the diversity from some of the, how they call the names of the initiatives, the teams that lead them uh, because, because of this sort of, how do we get over how this is viewed? You know, when every leader hears this word, they kind of, you know, they, they retreat 
or they feel like the compliance police is coming or they feel like they got to hire the wrong person for the job because somebody's telling them that they need more diversity, you know, and you have to deal with all that before you can get through to the really meaty, good conversation, which is what does this have to do with leadership and innovation and all those things we know it drives. So... Uh, that's really powerful, actually. So I was going to ask you, I, I've heard from a couple of people in the last six months, actually, exactly the same thing around mm. the fact that actually sometimes it seems to be the diversity word in itself yeah. conjures up such different images. Whereas when you start from inclusion, it's inclusion regardless of sexual orientation, color, race, whatever. Whereas mm-hmm. diversity puts in straight away a race thing in people's heads know, and they I get know. scary. Is that something yeah. you feel? That's true. That's a thing. And, and inclusion still has a relatively blank slate. I mean, I, no. I think that we are we are very, uh, we're new in our understanding of what that means because the inclusion is the how. Um, and that gets you right into the leadership discussion. And, and it's really cool because like if you know that bias informs the how for so many of us, right, without us knowing because it's unconscious, mm-hmm. um, it, it, feels very, it feels very concrete in a way um, and very actionable because every leader can be a more inclusive leader. Um, every one of us can do small things, private things. I mean, it doesn't even need to be huge and public and the grand gesture. Um, I, I want it to be. Uh, but but in the meantime, if you're a middle manager, you can just literally run meetings in a different way and just be cognizant of who's being heard and, and how different people are, who their their input is being considered or um, how who's dominating the conversation. You know, little things like that that I think um, can make a big difference. So yeah, it's um, and then we have belonging, which is where the next word that's becoming really popular, particularly in the West Coast of the U.S. with a lot of tech companies, a lot of young companies, and just with that West Coast vibe, is you know, belonging is a is a really great additional thing to think about. Like, how do we create workplaces where people feel they belong? Because belonging is about all of the things encapsulated in diversity and inclusiveness: the who, the how, the what. Belonging is the feeling, the result of these things, of doing these things well. And, um, and it's something that we can all relate to. I mean, who wouldn't want to feel that? We spend so much time at work. We spend the majority of you know, our waking hours there and it should feel good. It should feel stimulating. It should feel that you're honored, that you can be authentic, that you are good at what you do, that you're in the right role, you know, that you're supported um, and not ignored or marginalized. Um, or stigmatized or not included. Um, I would want that for everyone. I wanted that for myself. Um, and I, I'm glad I'm an entrepreneur, but I'll tell you, it's not the solution for everyone. So we've got to figure out how to generate belonging in large institutions. And it's tricky. Mm, it's really interesting. As I, as I hear you speak, I, I sort of think back to um, Jeffrey Pfeffer's work around dying for a paycheck and sort of, I'm almost seeing opposite sides of the same sort. You know, if you can be inclusive, you're actually pulling people out of that poor well-being, that fear-based state. So I see these sort of thing, opposite ends of the scales to some extent. Yeah, it's true. I have to look that work up. I don't know that work, but yeah, I think um, anybody that writes about employee engagement these days, that's not considering inclusion. Uh, I, I feel like they're kind of, they're missing a big piece of the equation, but I think, I think still people are, I'm noticing still like leadership books being written that aren't, they never say the word diversity once. They never say the word inclusion once, or they never, or they don't, at all sort of go through the, the lenses of identity and how those impact how engaged we feel. Um, and people are probably, I, I honestly think many, many men have been writing about leadership for a long time. And I have them all on my bookshelf behind me, as you see, <laughs> um, I've read them all. And uh, I think we're ready for a new, a new kind of teacher of what leadership looks like we've been ready for a long time but i but when i go to the barnes and noble bookshelf and i see who are the gurus there's not a lot of diversity amongst the gurus of leadership too and so that's really interesting i think you know if you're a straight white man it is it is an unusual person in, that has that identity that is passionate about diversity that's really fluent in how to talk about it because it's just not somebody's day-to-day experience so you have to make an actual intentional effort to learn enough to be dangerous in a good way, to sort of take on that mantle of, I want to be an advocate. And let me understand the basics of this conversation so that every time I talk about leadership, I can represent that piece of the equation and do it in a, in a relatively competent, respectful, and humble way. 
you know, we say cultural competence, we say cultural intelligence. I love cultural humility. Mm-hmm. Um, humility is the ability to say, wow, there's many things I don't know. Even as I'm writing a book on leadership, um, it would be really powerful to see more straight white male leaders that are dominating those, bo- those bookshelves and the bestseller lists and everything to incorporate this because think about your readers and the demographic of your readers is not, doesn't look like you anymore, you know? And so are you speaking and writing in a way that where they turn that page and they're like, Oh, he's talking about me. He's talking about my experience. And in the meantime, I think we need more women writers. We need more diverse voices writing about leadership, teaching about leadership, of course, you know, and that's one thing that I, um, I would love to be called a leadership guru, not just a diversity (laughs) guru. You know, I, I think this is, this is a fundamental conversation and um, people who are not incorporating it are going to be left behind and their, their teachings are going to be viewed as sort of part of a past guard. I, th- I really think because um, this is a re- this is a reality on our doorstep. It's, it's really interesting. I've been looking at quite a lot of future of work reports um, mm. and attending some, um, some meetings over here, Jennifer, and one of the interesting things that's popping up is actually around inclusion and bias in AI. Oh, so yes. We, so if we've got a lot of straight white or white males coding yes. our future software, we're yes. potentially risking coding bias into AI. And <laughs> without being sort of, without trying to be too scary about it, it's a really interesting time, I think, for your work because, you know, this is like, you've got the leadership part, absolutely. But we've actually got the societal internet of things part of this mm-hmm. whole story as well, which is a really interesting time, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, just try, if you want to see what happens, Google, Google, um, CEO and look at the images that come up. It's all men. Um, when we Google what beauty, what comes up is all white faces, you know? And so AI has, has taken on the biases of the designers. It's garbage, not garbage in garbage out. It's not garbage, but it's, it's biased and it's not inclusive. And so, um, you know, the fact that black faces can't be recognized (laughs) or they are incorrectly um, categorized because there's not enough data to actually create the norms for comparison's sake, Um, you know, did that occur to anyone as they were designing, um, you know, these these systems? As you said, the Internet of Things is going to touch every part of our life. And, um, And you got to see it to be it, right? We, this is so harmful. Because, you know, an aspiring girl CEO someday who has that leadership potential, what is she seeing, you know, in terms of what a leader looks like? And we're still, we're still sort of replicating that. And it's on hyperspeed. When we code it into our technology, um, we sort of, it sort of spreads exponentially and it accelerates that bias. So it's way worse. I think what you're referring to is the, um, the, the power to do harm. Um, is magnified, and we've got to get a handle on that. On the flip side, I don't know if it came up in your in your conferences you've been going to, but there's some really awesome technology that's being developed to counter bias. Mm-hmm. Um, like Text IO is one where they go; it goes through job descriptions or performance reviews, and it highlights uh, biased language, language that has been shown to repel uh, repel women and people of color and non traditional talent from applying for jobs. Um, it's been shown gendered language and uh, performance reviews. Um, it's a perfect example is if a woman, you know, it said that a woman has sharp elbows or she's aggressive, that same level of performer in a male is heralded for being uh, assertive, right? So we have these double standards that play out in um, the way that our performance is assessed and written about. And we need technology to help us um, to help sort of, it's, a, it's like a gentle shock to the system because I don't think we can be good enough to spot ourselves doing these things. I mean, we can, we can to a certain extent, but technology is going to literally say, hey, did you know that when you use this word, this is the connotation of that word? And here's the research that, that shows that it's gendered and here's an alternative. So when you mouse over a word, it can say, here's what you might want to use. That is teaching us, and that's technology teaching us in ways that we can't teach ourselves and we can't break those bad habits because it is so deep in us. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of the water that we drink and the air that we breathe since we were kids. We live in a, an incredibly biased sort of white-oriented, male-oriented world. 
And that's why, uh, that's why a lot of us always try to, I share a lot in social media stories of different kinds of leaders and the stories that aren't habitually told because I want, I want to provide that. And I need to be a role model for what an LGBT woman CEO looks like. And I always try to put that out there to say, I never had anybody to look at that was living my life, but I don't ever want that to be true for future generations. So, you know, if you're listening to this, my ask is that you think about how much of your diversity story, however you define that, is something that you're sharing on a regular basis as a leader. Because so many are without role models and so many think they can't make it and they don't see anyone that has their background, whether that's education or socioeconomic or um, cultural background. Um, you know, it's very, very important for all of us to be more overt about who we are uh, because we want people to stay and feel that even if there's one person they can look up to, I think it makes a huge difference in terms of their engagement and willingness to stay in a job. Oh, this is lovely. Look, thank you so much for that. That count. I've not heard actually of a text IO. That's brilliant. So yeah, it's very I, I, now that's really, really cool. And I, I'm really grateful for your sort of positive counter story because I think that's the point with everything, isn't it? This, uh, we mm -hmm. live in a world of polarity and there is actually this middle ground of sort of meeting in the middle. Yes. And it's quite nice to, nice to hear that from you. And I'm, I'm yeah. conscious of time because this incredible conversation, um, but I am conscious of your time. Would you mind, um, before letting people know how they can get hold of you, I'm really interested to understand who or what is inspiring you the most right now. Hmm. Wow. Oh, let's see. I, I get really excited when I go to uh, men, men for inclusion conferences. So there's a couple that happen in the U.S., there are uh, one in particular called the Better Man Conference, uh, one in, it ran in San Francisco about a month and a half ago, and also in New York at Hearst's um, Global Headquarters, who's a client of ours, and hosted us generously. Um, and it's just, it's an unusual because you're never in a room full of men that have taken that day or two days to talk about inclusiveness, talk about their role as leaders. Um, kind of go through the questions they have, feel safe enough to ask those questions. So I think I'm really inspired by what that to me indicates about the future potential of getting more people involved and, and really doing that work with that community is, is what I think a lot about these days. And um, that dovetails well with some emerging research and scholarship on the whole concept of being an ally, um, which started in the LGBT community as straight allies who have helped us achieve so many things, um, have really thrown their weight, their numbers, their influence in you know supporting gay marriage for one thing. Um, we, we as an LGBT community that's so, so marginalized and also sort of small in number, never could have achieved, it's just like civil rights, you know, it, it, it sort of was trying to achieve certain things, but once you can make it a majority issue, um, that's when you really, you really um, hit that threshold. And you can make lasting change. So I think that with the diversity and inclusion conversation, we need to involve more people in it. And we've been spending a lot of time in the choir, as we say. Uh, so I'm often in front of a bunch of women in my audiences or people of color or LGBT leaders and allies who are already on board. But it makes me think of what about the other 50% of the world and particularly those male leaders that have a lot of power and influence, perhaps a lot more than we do because we're a lot of us are pushing from the bottom up because we're not in those senior positions, you know, and that's a whole other story. The reasons why that's as we talked about earlier in the episode. So um, that group, I want to figure out, I think I'm most excited about those of us who are talking a lot about that engagement and some um, companies and organizations have men as allies, uh, committees starting and groups starting. They're starting to meet. They don't know what to work on exactly, but they know they want to do more, which is great. Um, we'll take, we'll take whatever starting place people are at and say, thank God you're interested. You want to do more. You want to use your voice for good. You acknowledge your, the influence you may have. You acknowledge maybe the, the privilege you might have that would make something easier for you to accomplish that would take a woman a year to accomplish or your women's network forever to do, but you could do with the picking up the phone and having a conversation. Uh, so I think that that whole body of work um, has really yet to be defined. It's really, mm -hmm. really, really new. 
And um, I'm excited about it. I mean, I love talking to women. I love talking to diverse audiences. I feel them. They're my people. I, that's my experience. Um, I've studied the whole problem from that side. But I think a lot of us need to pivot and study the problem from the other side and, and think about how we can help uh, people just get started. Um, I honestly think, and there's going to be a couple of books written about this, including mine next year, about allyship coming from this angle. And so we're going to start to, a lot of them are my friends. We all stay in touch. We are all kind of learning from each other. There's a Twitter handle called Better Allies, okay. uh, which, is, um, which is great. And uh, there's so many resources and tips shared under that handle. They're doing such good work. And there's a book coming out um, by that, uh, the creator of that in the new year as well. So I think that this is an emerging conversation. I find it stimulating. Um, and I, at the same time, I'll be very conscious to bring all my knowledge um, into those new conversations and, and try to educate in a comfortable way. But still, you know, leadership should be uncomfortable. Remember, you're not leading if you're not uncomfortable every day. So I would, I would really give your listeners that to say being uncomfortable is okay. And you should be if you're really growing. And this is an arena that we all need to grow in. God knows I, I'm, I want to be considered an ally to different communities that I don't know a whole lot about. And that's my own work. And so I put myself intentionally in those spaces, sitting in the back, listening, representing what I learn, trying to you know, bring that voice into conversations I'm in where there's no representation. Those are things that I, I'm always working on. So we're never, ever finished. We're all works in progress. And um, we need to create that safe space in order to do that learning together. Oh, that, that, that's wonderful. Just, just to give you the confidence as well, there's going to be a lot more allies when your book comes out next year. Because, <laughs> oh, I hope so. Really, really. My ears. I, I really, really believe it. You can certainly have an ally myself. There's a lot of people over, over this side of the pond um, seeing more and more male groups. Mm, now good. To bring up. There's volunteering to try and tackle toxic masculinity. So oh, yes. there's actually quite a lot of what you maybe call, like you say, ground movements. And I think over the next two to three years, We'll see yeah. these connecting. They'll start, I hope so. they'll start pivoting off each other. I'm pretty sure I it's coming. So. I, I think so too. I believe it. That's why I would write a book on it, honestly. And um, I'm used to being a bit ahead. Um, a lot of us get paid to kind of predict, right, the future of work. And um, I, I'm hoping part of our energy can kind of manifest this as well. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what you do when you try to predict. You Absolutely. create the conversation that you want to be having and that you think is needed. And then as a consulting company, we can build the structure in which to have those conversations and make that progress too. So um, I'm really excited to see what, what the next couple of year, years hold. And, and the U.S. is in such cra in a crazy space the last two years. So there's so much appetite that I don't think would have been there if our elections in 2016 had turned out a different way. And a lot of us reflect on that and say, wow, you know, we really, really had an honest look at where we're at and where we're not as a result of, of, of the way the, that election went and, the, and what's happened in the last two years. So I, I, I hesitate to say I'm grateful because I've been suffering, um, <laughs> but I am because um, it has awakened the appetite. And I have so many ideas for what to do with that appetite. And it's in a long time coming. And so in a way that catalyst of all that has happened uh, is exactly the right answer in a crazy way wonderful well look um <laughs> how can people reach you Joe? you've been an absolute joy thank you for sparing the time how can sure. I, how can people reach out to you yeah so uh let's see my twitter handle is at jennifer brown i'm super active there um my i'm on linkedin and facebook jennifer brown consulting you'll find me there uh the book is called inclusion it's on amazon uh it's in paperback hardback and also audiobook which i recorded myself in case that's mm -hmm. your preferred method of digesting content uh my podcast is called the will to change and i've had about like you I've, i'm i'm getting up there in the 40s i think of episodes i've been running it for 2 years um it's true stories of diversity and inclusion and i i bring my favorite people on there so please check it out on itunes or other places you tune into your podcast listening um, and what else? I think we have a mailing list. If you'd like to get on it and hear about where I'm speaking. Um, if you'd like to send an email to info at jenniferbrownconsulting.com. And I've also given a Ted talk. You can check out some of my talks on YouTube, uh, just to see, kind of get a flavor for our messaging and, uh, but please support us uh, from wherever you like. And, um, I think the book is probably one of the best resources if, if you're in a company, even a small startup, 
or a consulting company, for example, I, they, a lot of people have it as their book club book and they get together and discuss it. And it's a great way to actually start an effort to ground yourself in the conversation before you try to think about well, what are we really going to do about this? I find it's a good level set for a lot of readers. That's a, as I've heard. So um, please pick up a copy. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I'll make sure all of these um, references to reach you will be on the, in the show notes. So I'm sure you'll hear from some more people. And thank you so much for your time today, Jennifer. Thanks, Gary. All the best. Take care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Hello there. It's just Gary Turner wrapping up this awesome podcast with Jennifer Brown. Just a few of my key reflections from this podcast. One is, which we're all fully aware of, that we still operate within a, a world that is heavily patriarchal. So as Jennifer mentions, very much white-based, very male-based, uh, particularly in terms of senior leadership, you know, leadership of governments, etc. You know, we are still seeing um, a dominant sort of white approach to life generally at the moment. And I think this is one of the things that Jennifer is challenging and the research out there proves that to have a better mix or a more diverse mix of people, different backgrounds, different cultures, different ways of thinking actually drives better performance. And there's reports out there from Boston Consulting, there's reports out there from KPMG and others. So the evidence is out there that it's valuable. However, we're still not seeing the shifts as quickly as maybe most of us would like. And it's also interesting, as Jennifer speaks about, that it's hard to measure all the things that make it feels like that one belongs. And I'm hearing more and more with Louise Karunwi um, when having this chat with Jennifer. You know, more and more people are talking about belonging. Uh, you know, Brene's Brown work, Brene Brown's work talks about belonging. And I think, you know, we talk about purpose, talk about meaning, but actually before you can really derive any of that, you actually just feel like you, you belong. You know, you need to feel like you are part of something. I think that's a really powerful message and belonging is the result, according to Jennifer, of when DNI is actually working, that there is no reason to fear or to worry about any of the isms that so many of us talk about every day. You know, if we can just get the, the if we can get inclusion working well, then people will feel that they belong. I also found it interesting hearing Jennifer talk about the fact that inclusion gets into the how of inclusion and diversity. So rather than this ethereal big idea that's sitting somewhere out of reach, now, inclusion is really the how to bring this to life, how to help people collaborate, how to engage and debate and have conversations with people that don't look like us and leaning into those people that don't look like us. I thought it was also interesting to hear Jennifer talk about that corporates are stepping in where government is letting us down regarding inclusion. And this feeds into the importance and it's part of her extra work is this concept of being an ally. So how can you try and be an inclusion or diversity ally? Uh, within the workplace so i just think it's some really really interesting reflections some 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 real actionable insight there uh from jennifer and as always really appreciate any feedback that you may have and uh do hope that you've enjoyed this podcast and hope to hear from you or speak with you on the next one all the very best for now thanks